This is an ABC podcast. Ask yourself this. What environmental price should the world be prepared to pay to switch to electric vehicles? It's a great question. Here's another one. When countries or people say they stand with Ukraine, do they mean that specifically? Or do they mean they want to contain Russia or defeat Putin? Isn't life fascinating? It's why I like doing Counterpoint. Hello, I'm Amanda Vanstone, and there is such a universe of ideas and opinions out there. Here's another conundrum. Doing good feels good. Mm, is that why you do it? And do you think about how much the USA and China have in common? But first, to that war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine seems to occupy a lot of space, and perhaps rightly so. But when someone says, I stand with Ukraine, what do you think they mean? Well, there are people other than me that have given this a lot more thought than I have. And one is Frank Ferrady. He's the author of The Road to Ukraine, How the West Lost Its Way, which has just recently been published. And he's been on Counterpoint before because he writes for Spiked Online, and we've spoken to him about his articles. Frank Ferrady, welcome back to Counterpoint. Do you think people who say, I stand with Ukraine, go as far as thinking about, well, do I mean Ukraine or anti-Russia, or is at the human one-on-one level, it's a sympathy with the Ukrainians. And the real question about do you stand with Ukraine or Russia is one that should be directed to nation states and politicians. Well, it's a very difficult question to answer because we all have very mixed reactions to what's happening in the Ukraine. Mm. I think many of us genuinely feel the need to support a people who were brutally attacked mm. and who against all odds are standing up to the invasion by this very large, powerful country, Russia. There are other people who are just simply fed up with Russia, bullying around the rest of the world. And then within that, there's a range of motives. One of the things I come across, in particularly in Europe, is a lot of people are just concerned about their own security and are, are saying, well, if Russia wins, then we're next. You know, That's what people are saying in Finland, the Baltic states, Poland, East Europe, and even People in England are feeling a little bit threatened by what happened. Mm. Now, there's mention of the Great Reset, which you describe as a fantasy scenario invented by Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum. What's the story with this idea of a Great Reset? I have to say I hadn't heard of it before, so I need someone who knows more about it to fill me in. Well, I think what the Great Reset is meant to refer to is that somehow after the pandemic and now after the war, we can almost like begin anew, like a year zero. And these people who promote the idea of the Great Reset, or sometimes they call it the new normal, suggest that in this world we're going to live in a more globalized, sort of harmonious world where nation states become less important and where global international institutions are going to have greater power. It's a kind of vision which I don't particularly like, where you have these experts playing more and more of a role in public life. They kind of displace politicians in decision-making. We all get together and 
as a planet, we decide to tackle the climate crisis together, you know, sort of transcending national and cultural differences. And it seems to me that this is an ideal that appeals to this kind of very powerful elite that meet in Davos in Switzerland and other places who do not take into account the day-to-day struggles of ordinary people throughout the world. And the fact that whether we like it or not, you know, we live in a world of nations with different interests and sometimes get into conflict with each other. So the great reset, you know, sort of seems to me to be a fairly dystopian view of the world where the experts reign and we have to smile at them. Frank, you talk about people in Davos, you know, announcing what they think should happen and not being in touch with the real struggles of people in their everyday lives. And I'm told that Thomas Sowell once said, it's hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. Is that what happens at Davos? People stand around and make announcements and try and influence decisions, but they don't pay any price if they're wrong. I think to some extent that's true, because these are people that have never been elected to be these great international oracles. Who knows how they got there? They never had to struggle for their position. And at the same time, when they make decisions that often influence people in the furthest corner of the world, they don't have to live with the consequences of those actions. Their responsibility is fairly minimal. It's paper thin. And you often find that they make decisions and everybody else pays for it. This happened, for example, in the 208 financial crisis, where their manipulation and their activity on the financial market had these very grievous consequences for people who lost their houses because of the mortgage market collapsing. So yes, I think that's very true, that there is a kind of irresponsible element to their behavior, which you know, sort of unfortunately does not stop them from doing that again and again and yet again. I'm Amanda Vanstone. This is Counterpoint. I'm talking with Frank Ferrady. We've spoken to him before on Counterpoint. He's the author of a recently published book, The Road to Ukraine, How the West Lost Its Way. I'm Amanda Vanstone. This is Counterpoint. I'm talking with Frank Ferrady. We've spoken to him before on Counterpoint. He's the author of a recently published book, The Road to Ukraine, How the West Lost Its Way. You mentioned the commentator N.S. Lyons pointing out that, as you say, a more accurate way to look at things is that the beginning of a new era is really the rebirth in a new form of the old one that's been crumbling apart. Do you think, without necessarily having read N.S. Lyons or understanding what he was saying, that that's in effect what Liz Truss was saying when she spoke in Washington, I think it was, or New York, about how we respond to this today will set the pattern for the new era? Because you could read that to mean we want to go back to the era where it wasn't okay just to march into someone else's country. Yes, I think there's a strong element in this because if you look back over the last hundred years, maybe even longer, there's a very you know, tangible sort of evidence of continuity where issues that were raised in the beginning of the 20th century are often still unresolved, but the conflicts and the tensions that they give rise to assume new forms. And sometimes you don't recognize them because you think that we now live in a post-war era where wars no longer occur in Europe and where, therefore, we can afford to look the other way 
when uncomfortable things happen. And I think when Trust made that speech, she was referring to the fact that there were moments in our history, for example, in the 1930s, where we practiced appeasement in the hope that after Munich, you know, Hitler and the other dictators would be satisfied. That was it. That was the last demand they would make upon us. And we did something a little bit like this in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea and invaded parts of eastern Ukraine, mm. where it was felt, well, it's not a big deal. You know, It did belong to Russia at one point. We might impose a few sanctions on some of the oligarchs, but the world will move on. And I think that there is a kind of failure to recognize that some of the most important questions that created conflict in the world, particularly in Europe, still mm. have a presence, a very real presence in our scenario in the 21st century. Indeed. I mean, you can't buy, what would you say, making some sort of appeasement or a peace deal. You don't wipe out the causes for that. I mean, for example, ethnic tensions, they exist, whatever the leaders say. It's not as if everyone in every little village on a border says, oh, okay, let's be friends, is it? What leaders do in no, some senses I, doesn't matter. Exactly. And that's one of the things I worry about because whatever happens as a result of the war in the Ukraine, nobody's going to win the war. It's not a war that either Ukraine or Russia can win for a variety of reasons. But what I really worry about is, even though I support Ukraine 120%, should Russia get you know, really badly defeated, and it looks like that at the moment, then the very integrity of the Russian Federation is called into question. And you can already see this big, big country gradually disintegrating because you now have wars on its borders between Armenia and Azerbaijan. You have people in Georgia, you know, sort of biting at the bits. You have the Caucasian Republic, some of the ethnic minorities there, just waiting for their opportunity to declare independence or separation from Russia. And then waiting in the wings are Turkey and Iran, who are supporting some of these countries. And what I really worry about is that if Russia disintegrates, then the kind of conflict we're seeing in the Ukraine will be relatively insignificant compared to what can happen on its other borders. And the consequences of that for the whole world, Australia well, included. What, what, what sort of things are you thinking of on the other borders? Well, you know, if Iran moves in, Turkey moves in, you know, Azerbaijan manages to sort of overwhelm Armenia, then a lot of other countries, Western countries, will feel obliged to get involved. The United States already said that it's prepared to support Armenia to some extent, partially as a way of putting pressure on Russia, because Armenia has always been relatively close to Russia as kind of Christian allies in a kind of a, a non-Christian Muslim environment. So you have all these countries hovering around, trying to cherry-pick, in a sense, bits of territory or pick up trade deals. And I think that when you think about all the resources, all the global resources that are situated there, that are quite important for the world economy. I cannot imagine the conflict there just being entirely localized without it spreading to other parts of the world. I haven't got a crystal ball and I cannot predict the exact scenario that's going to kick in. But all that I feel and fear is that it could lead to much greater conflict than we're seeing at the moment. Mm. Frank, you talk in your article about geopolitical illiteracy and mm -hmm. the historical amnesia prevailing in the West. Yeah. Well, sort of a bit of a damning indictment of the political leadership internationally, but easily, easily could be true. The historical amnesia yeah. in particular is 
I'm not sure it's complete amnesia or just a willingness to only think in the present. I'm not sure they don't know what happened in the past or don't remember it. It's just that they're perhaps silly enough to think that it doesn't matter and they can, there's a now a clean slate, every day a clean slate. But it isn't like that, is it? No, it isn't. All these things are intertwined. You know, this kind of decision not to remember, this commitment to the present and to live in a year zero and nothing matters that happened beforehand. Forgetting that they do matter and geopolitical literacy stems from this. I mean, you can see this, for example, in Australia, the way that the Australian government was caught unaware as the Chinese moved into the Solomon Islands, as was the United States. And they imagined that the Solomon Islands will be pretty much under the protectorate of the United States, as it had been for decades. And then one morning you get up and you realize the Chinese had made this deal and that deal. They're providing security support for the Solomon Island governments. And, you know, you caught unaware. That's what geopolitical literacy is. And we're doing this. America is doing it. Britain is doing it. France and Germany in particular are doing it. When they believed rather stupidly that conventional wars are 19th century or early 20th century, they are no longer an issue in the European continent. And there are books written about it called The Obsolescence of Wars. And there was this fantasy that the wars are only going to happen in Syria or, or Afghanistan, but yeah. not within the Western heartland. And now we wake up one morning and we, we realize that actually history has the last say. And you have yeah. to remember what's been going on, otherwise you're in big trouble. Indeed. Well, big trouble we might be in. Frank Ferrodi, thanks for joining us again on CounterPoint. And I hope the book goes really well and gives people insight into what's going on. Nice talking to you. Some people talk about Russia having had a golden age. That might have been true of the United States and China, might have been, but mm, they might be better being called Gilded Ages. We read so much about the United States and China. Is it the clash of two Gilded Ages? asks our next guest. You might be sick of hearing about it, but I'm not. I think it's fascinating stuff. Yuan Yuan Ang is a professor of politics at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And in 2021, she was named by Apolitical as one of the 100 most influential academics in government. It's a fascinating piece. And she joins us now from Michigan. Yuan Yuan Ang, what's the difference between a Gilded Age and a Golden Age? Mm, well, the term Gilded Age was coined by Mark Twain in his novel. It's a satire of the United States in the late 19th century. And he very cleverly chose the term the Gilded Age because it means that it's not pure gold. And beneath the glittering surface of gold, what you really have is base metal. And by that analogy, what he was trying to describe is that America during the Gilded Age was a time of rising wealth and prosperity, but it was also a time of corruption, inequality, financial risk, and decadence. Mm. And is that what we're now seeing in China, or we have been seeing over the last, say, 15, 20 years? My second book is titled China's Gilded Age. So yes, I would argue that China is now undergoing the Gilded Age. It's hard to say when it began. I would put the starting point 
1978, when the Chinese reform leader Deng Xiaoping started reform and opening in China. And so that would make this a 40-year process. Mm-hmm. And today we see the signs of a gilded age in China. For those who have been to the country, if you go to Shanghai, for instance, where I lived for a year, you see these dazzling skyscrapers and you see these car dealerships for Lamborghinis. And right mm-hmm. beside it, there would be a rundown old building with very poor families crammed into a small space, just right beside each other. And it's a very similar story, surprisingly, similar to late 19th century America, where you have this process of rapid growth. Many people were lifted out of poverty, but you see a great deal of inequality and also a great deal of corruption. And so, yes, China is living through a gilded age. Mm. So there are similarities. Now, when you want to move on from a gilded age, what do you have to do? What do you have to do? I think I'll borrow your phrase from the chat we had before we began this conversation. You said to read, was it Roosevelt, you said, who wrote yes, a Roosevelt's life? A Strenuous Life, yeah. Yes, you have to go through a strenuous process. Yes. And, <laughs> and it's a different kind of strenuous process from escaping poverty. Right? And that was my first book. My first book was called How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. That was the story of China from reform and opening in 1978 to 2012 when Xi Jinping took office as president. Mm -hmm. So that was by no means an easy process, but it was less complex in the sense that the only thing that the CCP had to accomplish was to increase the level of income, industrialization, and urbanization. They had to put food on the table and they had to make sure that people had jobs. Now, none of this is easy in a country of more than a billion people. But what makes escaping a gilded age so much more difficult is that it's no longer a simple question about making people less poor. It becomes a question of how do you reform business state relationship in order to reduce the cost of corruption? How do you manage financial risk so that you can remove speculation without causing the whole economy to crash? How can you reduce inequality without reducing entrepreneurial incentives to invest and innovate? And in all of these questions, you don't have a straightforward answer. And in particular for the CCP, there is no playbook they could rely on because they have never, as a communist party, ruled a successful capitalist country with capitalist problems. Mm. Well, if you go back to what America did at the turn of the 20th century, you point out that mm-hmm. they were then an emerging industrial power and they yeah. were fighting graft and inequality through political activists. They had some civil service reforms, ways and regulations of getting corrupt politicians out. That was all a good thing, but it's a different situation now, isn't it? They've got a different category of people that are causing their problems, the really super rich technocrats. They're not quite the same as the railroad magnates, are they? 
So what I argue in that essay is it's really a kind of curious story of three Gilded Ages. The first Gilded Age was America in the late 19th century, entering in mm-hmm. the 20th century. And that was the origins of the term Gilded Age. And the second Gilded Age that I talked about is China's Gilded Age. And then the third Gilded Age is America today. America today is arguably in the new Gilded Age. We see high levels, very high levels of inequality during the pandemic. The rich became richer and the poor became poorer. Today, America does not face problems of extortion and graft, but you have very sophisticated forms of state capture and influence paddling, interest groups that are hobbling the government from taking strong action. And as we recall, in 2008, America had a massive financial crisis. So America today is also going through its Gilded Age. Now, when you compare that with China, it's important not to make false equivalents. I'm not saying mm. that, oh, look, these two countries are exactly the same. Obviously, they're not, right? No. Because they have similar economic problems, but completely different political systems. America is a liberal democracy, and China is a one-party autocracy. And so what we see, if you compare China and America side by side today, is that they face similar problems arising from capitalism, but they are dealing with radically different ways arising from the fact that they have different political systems. So in the case of the Biden administration, in order to take the necessary government actions, he has to go through the legislative process and he has to get public support for his industrial policies and his infrastructure bills. Whereas in China, under the leadership of Xi, he's able to use commands <laughs> and campaigns, right? Yeah. He's able to order the entire bureaucracy to fight corruption, to eradicate poverty. And these are actions that Biden cannot take in a liberal democracy. So the methods are different, but the underlying problems arising from capitalism are more similar than most people think. Mm, Indeed. You're on our end. This is CounterPoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Yuan Yuan Ang, professor at the University of Michigan. And we're talking about gilded ages of the United States and China versus a golden age. You were talking about the tension, if you like, a necessary tension between capitalism and democracy. You know, we need capitalism to encourage innovation, wealth generation, etc. But it gets out of hand. It can cause enormous damage to the democratic system. And one of the problems you highlight is the increasing gap between rich and poor. I have to say Mm -hmm. I've often Mm -hmm. thought to myself, well, I don't mind if a lot of people at the top or some people at the top get a lot, lot richer. What I mind is if the people at the bottom can't eat, can't get ahead, you know. So my Mm -hmm. issue is not so much the gap but social mobility, the capacity of kids to do better than their parents, to move up. Because I think if you have a socially mobile society, a lot of good can come from that. What do you think about social mobility as being a key indicator of the health of a society? 
It is. It is absolutely a key indicator of the health of a society, the health of an economy. The troubling thing that happens is that as people who live in liberal democracies, we have always believed that democracy and capitalism go together. Right? They're born together and they go together. They're natural companions. What we don't often realize, however, is this tension between them that you alluded to, which is the fact that capitalism represents an economic marketplace and democracy represents a political marketplace. Right? So what happens when, if you look at the American Gilded Age in the late 19th century is, why is it that during the Gilded Ages, why do we see rags to riches story, right? Why do we see the Andrew mm -hmm. Carnegie's? And similarly in China, why do we see the Alibaba's? And that's because these countries are renewing themselves after devastation. So whatever the pre-existing hierarchies and inequalities that existed were destroyed. And after this destruction, it opens up room for enterprising, hardworking, cunning individuals to build fabulous wealth, right? So it's essentially like resetting again. But what happens with social mobility is that once a number of individuals and their companies emerge victorious from this new game, they will begin to consolidate their power. And they will not just have power in the economic marketplace, they will also have power in the political marketplace. And mm -hmm. America was full of examples during the Gilded Ages. I give the example of Mr. Stanford, who was the tycoon of railroads, and he was at the same time the governor of California, right? So he had tremendous political advantages to sure finance did. his railroad <laughs> industry. It was so convenient. He could pass laws. He could get the government to pay for his projects. And so, of course, he became fabulously rich and nobody could compete with that, right? So what happens with social mobility is that I think we all want to believe that liberal democracies are meritocracies, that if you work hard, you'll be able to move up. But we have to confront the reality that what happens is over time, the people who emerged victorious early on in the process begin to accumulate and have more and more advantages to the point where they no longer need to work hard and would still dominate the economic and political marketplace. Mm. It's a complicated world we live in, Yuan, as you know, and you've termed this phrase access money, and that's the problem now, isn't it? What rich people have got, really super rich people, super, super rich, got so much money that they don't have to chase government, governments chase them. Um, well, wanting... I think it's like seasonal cycles. If we could yeah. use the analogy of nature, if you think about a political economy, it goes through these cycles as well. So what fascinates me about a Gilded Age is you can think of that as a season of spring, right? The country was devastated in the case of the United States after the Civil War. In China, mm -hmm. it was after Mao and the Cultural Revolution. So it was a state of devastation. But after that devastation, you have renewal. So the Gilded Age, in that sense, was a time of renewal and possibilities. 
and you had 100% social mobility for anyone who is willing to uh, fish in troubled waters, so to speak. But what happens in this spring season is that as it enters into the fall season, that mobility starts to go down because the garden plot is now dominated by a few really large plants who, who made it really big. And when that happens, the ecosystem is now out of balance again. And then again, you know, the whole system needs to reform. You will have a period of tumult. It might again go into what appears to be winter. So I think there's a seasonal rhythms to political economies. Mm. Well, that's bad news for people who see winter coming on, but good news for those young enough to be around for yeah, the spring. Yeah, it depends on how long yeah. you're around for the spring. It does, doesn't it? Yes, you and you yes. And it's Ang, all about timing. It is, and some of that we don't control. Yuan Yuan Ang, thanks for joining us today on CounterPoint. Thank you. Oh, the rant this week is about policy making and what a load of pickup sticks it is. Oh, how many times did I hear people say, oh, they should do this as if it were simple. Well, doing one thing might be, but the consequences might be long reaching. You might not realise what you've been doing. Now, one example of that that we've already covered is plant trees. Isn't that good? Sounds so good, feels so good, but might mess things up. Like in South Africa, if you remember the story, they planted a whole lot of eucalypts. Eucalypts went mad, sucked up all the water, and now they have to root them out. You can't just go and plant any tree anywhere. It has to fit in with the ecosystem. Otherwise, you are destroying an ecosystem in order to just plant your trees. So when I read that we could help reduce the world's CO2 emissions quite dramatically, and there were a number of reasons why, six, I think, and one of them was we've got this huge landscape we could produce so much biomass. And I thought of that little story that we did. And I thought, really? What environment are you going to ruin in order to plant the trees you want to plant or the bushes or whatever for your biomass? There are consequences to taking over land and putting in agriculture, whether it's to feed people with cows and wheat or whether it's to grow biomass. There are consequences when you get into an environment and fiddle around with it, you wreck it. So we need to think about that. That's the policy conundrum. There's a good idea, but what are the consequences? Hmm, it's always the case. Here's another game of pickup sticks. Move to electrical vehicles, need more lithium. More lithium mining. Environment. Hmm. Cars with electric batteries seem to be the order of the day. Everyone says, let's have more electric cars. Great, means more electric batteries. Great, means more lithium being mined. Well, exactly how is the mining happening? We need to ask ourselves the question, what environmental price should we be prepared to pay for the metals needed to switch to electric vehicles? Now, I've got a proposition here. What about, just like we have certified organic meat and milk and everything else, why don't we have certified 
electric batteries, that is proper mining of lithium, the least environmentally damaging. Anyway, look, that's just the thought from an old politician. Let's talk to someone who's put a bit of effort into this, Fred Pierce. He's been on CounterPoint many times before. He's a freelance author and journalist in the United Kingdom, a contributing writer to Yale Environment 360, and he joins us now from the UK. Fred Pierce, what are the two or more types of lithium mining and why is one better for the environment than the other? Well, there are two kinds. You can dig it out of the ground from hard rocks, and you do a hell of a lot of that in Australia, in Western Australia, and you've got probably the biggest lithium mines in the world right now. Or you can evaporate it from water underground, which is what they're planning to do and are doing on a huge scale high in the Andes in South America, way up in the mountains, in the high plateaus of Argentina and Peru and Bolivia, where they have these salty underground water and salt flats and a really kind mm. of salty environment, a very particular ecosystems up there, you know, wetland ecosystems, lakes and flamingos and all sorts of stuff up there. And basically, they pump the water up and put it in huge evaporation ponds and let the water sit there and evaporate until the lithium, which is dissolved in the water, comes to a kind of big concentration. So they have this kind of soup of lithium that develops in the high-altitude sun, which they then take away and turn into batteries. Technically, it's lithium carbonate that they turn into lithium, which they put in batteries. And the demand for those batteries is soaring on an absolutely phenomenal scale at the minute because we all want electric vehicles and electric batteries that go in them. You know, you have lithium-ion batteries in mobile phones, but they take a fraction of a gram, whereas the battery in your car takes tens of kilograms of this stuff. So the demand is huge. And, of course, therefore, the price for this stuff is huge as well. Everybody wants a slice of the market, so... The world's big mining companies are signing up with local Argentinian companies to evaporate all the water in the high Andes. And this is going to have huge consequences for the ecosystems there and for the people there too, because there are indigenous communities living up there, grazing their cattle on the salt pastures and so on. So it's a yeah. new crisis caused yeah. by our green demands. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the minuscule amount of lithium required in a phone, it's about a tenth of an ounce of lithium carbonate, whereas yeah. a car electric battery, 130 pounds, 20,000 times as much. So yeah. that's quite a lot. The other stat to give you is that one tonne of lithium, which will give you a few cars, a few batteries, yeah. requires half a million gallons of water. So we're talking a lot of water here. We are indeed, aren't we? Now, Argentina's got reserves of up to 60 million tonnes. I know we get mesmerised by this, but they all run out in the end, don't they? But well, nonetheless, they that means people are wanting to go there. It's not just Argentina, though. It's this area we're talking about goes into Bolivia and to Chile as well. But what about the locals? What's the story with them? I mean, are they all in favour or all apprehensive or divided? Well, they're certainly apprehensive, but they're divided too. I mean, you can, as you would imagine, in any of these kind of situations where there's a sudden kind of gold rush kind of going on, it's a lithium rush. Um, they call the area the lithium triangle now. Yeah, some people just want the jobs. Uh, jobs are in pretty short supply out there, as you'd imagine, and it may be better 
working on, you know, managing one of these lithium plants or driving the trucks than it is being a cattle herder. But other people are, if you like, thinking long term. They're thinking, well, the jobs will be here until the mine shuts down, maybe 10, 20 years. And then what do we do? Because then we've lost all the water. We won't be able to go back to cattle ranching. We'll be stuck. Basically, we'll have to head for the cities. So it's a question, really, I suppose, of whether you want a bit of cash now or whether you want your communities to survive up there long term. So, well, you can imagine any community would be divided and they're divided too. Some communities have jumped to one side. Some have jumped the other. So some communities are just banning or attempting to ban the mining companies from coming in. They'd be blockading roads, that kind of stuff. And in a couple of cases, the mining companies have thought better of it and walked away, certainly the foreign ones with the reputations to defend. But in other cases, they're saying, come on in and give us the jobs. You're on CounterPoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Fred Pierce. We're talking about how much environmental damage are you prepared to put up with in order to get the lithium you want? I know we know a lot about the world, but do we really understand the hydrological impact of not just mining on its own, but in fact the interrelationship between these particular basins in these three countries? Do we understand that ecosystem itself before we start taking anything out of it, like thousands of tonnes of water a day? No, this is pretty remote. Not many scientists have gone out there to assess things. The locals reckon that they know a fair bit about their own ecosystem, and I'm sure they do. Mostly, it's ornithologists have been going up there because there's a lot of flamingos and you know, bird spotters love bird spotting. I don't want to be cynical about it, but we know a lot more about the birds than we do about the hydrology. What basically happens up there high in the mountains is that the heavy rains on the hilltops come down into these basins that form between the mountains, essentially, mm. and the water collects. And it slowly becomes more salty and there's fresh water there and there are layers of salt and there are these salt lakes and there are fresh water pastures and there's salty pastures. There's a whole mixture of stuff. And the basins are probably connected. And that's quite important because it means that if you drain one, you'll drain them all. Hydrologists fear that you couldn't say, okay, well, we'll leave some of these drains to nature and for local communities, and we'll take the lithium out of some of the other ones, and that should work. You know, we'll preserve some of the ecosystems, we can preserve livelihoods, but we also get the lithium. But right now, we don't know whether, as I say, draining one will drain them all. Do you know, you mentioned something in your article, Frank, that made me think just how similar the problems in the world are, whatever place you find yourself at, whatever wealth you've got, whatever the problem. And one of them is consultation. You know, I was consulted in my then local council area, not my local council area now, about where a bus stop was going to go on the street that we lived. And I went up at the end of this consultation and said to the guy, look, I live here and I think blah something. And he said pretty much, look, I don't think you have to worry. I think the bus is going down there. And he thought I'd be happy with that, which I sort of was because it wasn't going nearer my place, or one was. <laughs> but I thought, well, this is all just a farce. Governments and companies engage in consultation sometimes to say they've been through the process. When I read what you said, I thought perhaps that's what happened here. They didn't really get it. Because, you know, to get free prior and informed consent, you've got to give people stuff in language they understand and talk to yep. them directly. Has that happened? I'm told not. I mean, the people who've been investigating this in detail and reading the literature that's been given to communities say 
on paper, some of the companies, uh, some of them are lousy, but some of the companies are attempting to consult, as you say. But if you hand people a whole load of scientific literature and say, well, what do you think? Well, what do they say? I mean, they're not equipped to handle it. You have to present material in the form that people can engage with, can understand and can respond to. It seems that virtually never happens. So it's box ticking, more or less cynically done. Sometimes probably just people are just not very expert in actually how you do consultation. But it's not effective and it leaves people cynical about the process. And I think quite rightly cynical. I would certainly be cynical too up there. You have to do these things properly. The other thing is you have to allow people to just say no. And most consultation processes are aimed at buttering people up and persuading them that it'll be all right, really, same as your bus stop story, that, well, you don't have to worry too much or, you know, we'll try and do something about the worst things. And if we can't, we'll pay you off a bit. You know, all those kind of things go on. If you're going to have genuine consultation, you have to be able to tell people you can say no and will go away. Just the same as with environmental impact assessments done by scientists, and a lot of money is spent on those kind of processes these days. You have to be able to let the people doing the environmental impact assessment to say, no, you shouldn't do this. Not, well, you could ameliorate the problems if you do this, but no, this is too bad, you shouldn't go ahead. And I think if people were allowed to do that, that would be the case here. But of course, the companies that do that never say no, because they know they'll never get another contract and you know, they more or less shut down business. So there's a lot of kind of dodgy behavior in all these consultations. And we need to recognize that. Yeah. Although you do mention one company that I don't know whether they did much in the way of consultations before they went there, but they did go there and there were a lot of complaints. And so they just left. And yeah. in that sense, they accepted no. They would have been smarter well, to well, get them well, before they, they went there. Uh, if communities fight hard enough, they can say no to things like mines and so on, because mines require infrastructure. And, you know, if you blockade the road, you can bring the military in to reopen the road. But if you blockade the road, then the companies can't get the trucks in and out. They just can't operate. And if you blockade the road and then advertise internationally and get on the international media and talk to people like me about how you've blocked the road, then it becomes an international story. And that's bad for uh, certainly large mining companies with reputations to defend. Local ones may get away with it, but the ones that we've heard of don't want to be associated with that kind of thing. And unless they're in a very belligerent frame of mind or just see so much money, they're not going to stop. Many of them will at that point back off. But if you have bad consultation, it basically tells local communities the only way that you're going to be able to stop this is if you physically stop it, if you if kind of get violent or at least get on the headline news. Pretty stupid, eh? Fred Pierce, thanks for joining us again today on CounterPoint. It was a pleasure as always. Speaking of feeling good because you're encouraging more electric vehicles... You might feel good when you do good, but is that why you do it? Mm, wrong reason. For one reason or another, I went to a religious school and the nuns used to say, it's much better to give than receive. And if you're a long-time CounterPoint listener, you will have heard me say I used to think, hmm, you don't get presents on your birthday, do you, or Christmas? Who says it's better to give than receive? But as you grow out of that childish stupidness, you start to realise that it does feel good to give things to people, you know, that they need or want, not just to give stuff away. 
to actually give someone something that they are glad to receive, whether it's a product or a service or some help or whatever. So it does feel good, but the question is, is it really good for you? Now, Ryan Byerley is a philosopher at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom, and he's done a bit of work on that. And he says that apart from psychopaths and narcissists, most of us are committed to the idea that it is good to consider other people's interests. So let's talk to him now about that. Ryan Barley, the question of helping others, does that sometimes involve what I call conspicuous compassion? People who don't help others quietly, they want to be seen to be helping others. In other words, they use it to make themselves look good. Is that a bit unkind of me? Oh, I don't know if it's unkind. I think you're probably on to something. When it comes to the motivations that we have to help other people, they're a diverse lot. <laughs> Many different things can lead us to exhibit helpful behavior that others might see or might not see. Yeah. Well, you talk about people who have unmitigated communion. What do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, so this was a feature of personality that psychologists became interested in in the mm -hmm. 80s and 90s because they were trying to understand why women might be at more risk for depression than men. And this tendency involves prioritizing others' interests at the expense of your own, in part mm -hmm. because you just can't manage to see how others are going to get on without you, and you can't manage to be happy unless you can make other people happy. Mm. But is that really putting yourself first? Or if you can't be happy unless others are happy, you could say there, well, you're putting yourself first because you're using the other people to make yourself happy. Is that yeah, unkind? Way, I mean, the other way to look at it right. is you have such a low opinion of yourself that, you know, you don't really care. Which is it with these people yes. who have this unmitigated communion? Are they ones who just don't care about themselves or are they trying to make themselves feel better? There's a little bit of a mix. So we find that this feature is related to depression, low self-esteem, and so they do seem to have a bit of a poor opinion of themselves. At the same time, like you point out, you're right, that they entangle their own happiness with other individuals' happiness. And a lot of time it's a close family member, someone with whom they have a close relationship, and they just can't be happy unless that other person is happy. And so they become very focused then to the point of over-involvement with taking care of the other person. Mm, mm. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. So that can make it extraordinarily hard if you don't differentiate between sort of your own happiness and someone else's. It doesn't give you an easy road in life, does it? Right. This is something we wanted to look at in our research was the relationship between unmitigated communion that we've been talking about and mm. something called self-differentiation. So a person low in self-differentiation is that kind of person that entangles their happiness with others' happiness, that's highly emotionally reactive to others' emotional reactivity. And we did find that these features, unmitigated communion and low self-differentiation, are closely related. Mm. Did you do any work too on how that impacts on the other person? I mean, we've been talking about the person with low self-esteem and low self-differentiation, and so they become committed to other people's happiness. If you're the other person, do you find all this potentially quite burdensome and interfering in a pain in the neck and possibly reducing your happiness? 
Sure. I think that makes a lot of sense. We didn't do work on that ourselves, but it's a topic that other people have examined. So yes, you can see how that could play out, that you could become annoyed by the meddlesomeness of others. There's certainly research that suggests that not all help or so-called help helps. Some help hurts. And you might think that someone who is overly involved with others might be more inclined to be giving some of that hurtful help. Mm. You're on RN. This is CounterPoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Ryan Barley. He's a philosopher at the University of Sheffield, and we're talking about helping others and why it makes you feel good, why you might want to think about how much you do. Ryan, I liked reading the article, but there was one thing that jarred with me a bit, and, and uh, you know, I'm a bit of a tough old bag. I, I don't normally think, oh, that's a bit harsh. But you were talking about the 25-year-old coach of the soccer team that got stuck in the caves. Stupid to let them go in there, of course. P. Eck, I think was his name. And there's a question about in ensuring that the others, the kids, all went out first. You know, was he being, in a sense, a bit of a hero and exhibiting this other-centeredness, focusing on others? Or was he thinking, well, we're all equal and so the kids are younger, they should go first? Or was he thinking, you raise this question, not me, of the additional value involved in showing care for them, the additional value for him at the time and afterwards when he got out. Because let's face it, when he got out, if he came out first, it wouldn't have been a very welcoming crowd, would it, really? Yeah, I think you raise a good point. It's very hard in particular cases to try to speculate about people's motives. So I was kind of asked for an example, right? And this is one that I thought might have some purchase on popular imagination that people might have some awareness of. And I was drawn to it actually a bit more, not so much because of the cave itself, but because of the way that the soccer players were describing their coach and his just typical behavior in daily life, that this wasn't sort of a one-off thing for him, but yeah. that it was more sort of reflective of who he was as a person. Mm. So you recommend that people actually reflect on when they're doing something nice, why they're doing it. It's okay, you know, you might feel better doing something good, but to reflect on why you did that. Why do you think we should reflect on that? Why not just do good things and, you know, don't worry about it? Well, I think the main reason is because the research I'm describing suggests that why we do the things that we do does mm. matter to some extent for our own well-being in particular for our satisfaction with our lives, for the extent to which we feel that our lives are meaningful, for our experience of stress and how well we cope with it. Mm. So just being nice and doing a good thing and feeling better about it, if you don't reflect on it, you might find that you've got a series of these events in your day or life or week or whatever, but they're all reasonably shallow that you haven't given any more meaning to your life other than I'm a nice person, I give away money, or I'm a nice person, I volunteer, you know, that's it. That you actually need to think more about yourself than that to really know yourself and get true benefit and give true benefit from the things that you do. It can't be flipped. Yeah, I think that it could make a difference for some people, yeah, that you might discover that... uh, the motives that are driving you 
could be more dangerous ones, or you might discover, to your delight, <laughs> that there are more healthy ones. Mm. Well, you suggest making a plan. It's a pretty simple thing you suggest, but not a bad start, and that's putting a plate of sweets in the break room at the office and letting everyone else go first. That's fine if you don't put very nice sweets there, but if you put the ones you like, it's going to be a bit harder, isn't it? Sure. I think making a plan like this can be helpful. It's something we learn about in other areas of psychological work that if we form an implementation intention, a kind of story of how we're going to react when a certain kind of situation arises, we can take some control over our behavior in that way and train ourselves into a new way of living. So if we do want to aim for putting others' interests ahead of our own, that's one technique we could use. Mm. Okay. Now, if you've got one piece of advice to people, is it this? Give yourself the chance to experience the satisfaction of doing good for others because it's important. Is that your advice? Yeah. You know, I think I'd say something in that vein. Perhaps that it's very surprising how much we underestimate the value that we will find and that others will find when we act out of concern for others. There's work that shows that we just systematically as human beings underestimate how good this is going to be for ourselves and for others. And so that leads us to prioritize ourselves more and others less. If we can learn to get over that, it could be really good for our own well-being. Sounds good to me. Ryan Barley, thanks for joining us on CounterPoint today. Thanks so much for having me. That's the program for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening and I hope you join us again next week. Don't forget, if you've got something to tell us, just go to the ABC site, go to RN and then follow the prompts to CounterPoint. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, it's Amanda Manstone saying see you later. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.